Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapters 48 and 50. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? These are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his hand his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. And the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. Amen, and good afternoon. Welcome. A couple things here before we get going. First of all, uh, you may have seen the, the, the tables and chairs in the lobby. That's set up for a free community lunch. It's going to happen right after this, just for this service. So if you hear some noise or smell some stuff, that's what it's going towards. So hang tight. We'll get to that. Uh, and second of all, of course, if you were here last week, you heard from Dr. Terrence Green, uh, one of our members here, a great uh, communicator. And so this week, it's you know it's sort of the reverse. Last week, you got tall, dark, handsome, and cool. This week it's short, 
white, pasty, and kind of nerdy. So, you know, as I say, we say in my house at dinner time, you, you get what you get, and you don't pitch a fit. So... There you go. Well, we are, we are completing, winding up our long and winding road here on our journey through Genesis, which we've been on since January. And before we get going, I want to tell you where we're going next. Next week, we'll be going right here in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and going all the way to the end. We'll be taking a look at the book of Revelation over the course of the summer. And so I hope you're excited about that. Can't wait to get to it. We'll be talking about hope for the future, but for the present. So we're looking at really the idea of hope in the book of Revelation. So we'll be starting in chapter one next week. Hope to have you here. So today, today we come to the last moments, verses, words of Genesis, and we see something really fascinating. We see that the, the narrator here, the writer here, is sort of doing a, a, a series of what I call time lapses. Time lapses. You guys know what a, a time lapse is, right? Maybe you've seen one of those videos, right, where it takes a, a one moment, it ends in another, but it, it compresses them, it runs them really fast all the way through from beginning to end. Maybe you, you've seen some of those in the news lately. I saw one uh, from some of that volcanic activity. Happened out in Hawaii where this giant lava thing like crosses the street and eats a car on the side of the road. I mean, it's kind of kind of scarier. Maybe you've seen a, uh, one of those time lapses where they build a building, a house, a stadium, and, and fast forward. The point is a time lapse begins in one moment, ends in the next, and by compressing him, creates a whole new kind of image altogether. And that, in a way, is what's happening at the end of Genesis. So, what out of all the stuff we're supposed to see, sort of a, a recap here, what are the final images? What do we learn? Let's look at these three images, these three time lapses here. First, we're going to see the time lapse of the crossed hands, where we see the sign of grace. Second, we're going to see the kneeling brothers, where we see the sovereignty of God. And finally, we're going to time lapse through the living coffin, where we see the seed of growth. Here we go. Let's begin at number one and look at this, this idea of the crossed hands. Now, again, we saw from uh, Dr. Green last week how, how God brought Joseph as a young man, uh, how he was sold in slavery and he became the ruler uh, of Egypt. And as he's there, there's a global international famine that hits him. Joseph has prepared the, the nation of Egypt to be able to, to handle it. And really, Joseph saves the world in a sense. And uh, while he's there in Egypt, his brothers are starving and uh, back home. And so they come to Egypt to beg grain and to buy some from Joseph, though they don't know it's him. They don't recognize him, but Joseph, of course, recognizes his brothers. And so we saw how Joseph tested them, how he wanted to see if they had changed and grown and really repented. And he saw that they had. And so in one of the most dramatic and climactic moments in all the Bible, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They hug, they cry, they, they fall on one another's necks, and the family is reconciled. It's beautiful. And now here we see how Joseph's family have relocated the aging, ailing patriarch Jacob from his homeland here to live out his last few days in Egypt with his family and children and grandchildren. And so here now in 48, with all the family together in Egypt, we're going to see the last moment of father and son, the last moment between Joseph and Jacob together. And in that final moment, before Jacob dies, something amazing happens. Let's see. The narrator tells us that Jacob's eyes were failing. That's a clue because this means he is almost, if not totally blind, hang on, flashback. What does that remind us of? 
It reminds us of Jacob's own father, Isaac, and reminds us of Isaac's own deathbed blessing decades before this when Jacob stole the birthright from his own brother. Oh, and so here we are now, decades later, the same thing is happening again. Another old man on his deathbed about to give a blessing only this time. There's a twist because unlike last time where the son comes and begs for the blessing, Jacob now calls his grandchildren in to give them a blessing. Why? Oh, it's because he's about to do something radical here in one decisive moment it says this verse verse 13 and joseph took both of them ephraim on his right towards israel's left and manasseh on his left towards israel's right and brought them close to him but israel that's jacob reached out his right hand and put it on ephraim's head though he was the younger and crossing his arms he put his left hand on manasseh's head though manasseh was the firstborn So Joseph brings the oldest to Jacob's right hand, the place of prominence, the place of power. And then he puts his younger son, Ephraim, at the lower place of honor, at Jacob's left hand. But Jacob crosses his hands and forces him to switch places of honor. Of course, Joseph doesn't like it. Joseph protests. He doesn't get it. He said, Daddy, no, you you can't do this. What's wrong with you? You know, my father don't. But Jacob says, no, son, don't stop me now. I'm on a roll. You know, he's he's like that little detective. Sorry, that bad 80s TV show Sledgehammer. Two of you have seen, you know, that guy, remember what he said? He said, trust me. I know what I'm doing, right? Till you got that. Praise the Lord. That's what YouTube is for. Thank you. I see you. I see you. Hands going up all over the building. Anyway, so what's, the, what's, what's, what's Jacob doing by refusing to switch his hands back? Oh, he's showing you that for the first time, he completely, totally grasps the grace of God and how the God of grace works in the world. Joseph, his own son, is surprised by this moment. But you shouldn't be if you've been following along in Genesis. Why? Oh, because we've seen that the God of the Bible is the God of grace. He always goes against the grain of power, against the the ways and culture that people keep one group out and elevate another. And so this moment right here with the crossing of the hands, this is like a time-lapse moment of one of the main, if not the signature themes of the book of Genesis you say, why is that? Oh, don't you remember? All the way back from chapter 4, which we saw to here in 48. It's always been, what? The younger over the older. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael. Then Jacob over Esau, Perez over Zerah. Then Joseph and Judah over Reuben. In this generation, you say, well, those are the women. You know, excuse me, men. What about the women? Well, hey, who carries the messianic seed, right? I mean, is it going to be, you know, fertile? Young Hagar or old and barren Sarah? It's Sarah. Will it be the beauty queen, Rachel? Or ugly, forgotten Leah? Oh, it's Leah. See, over and over again, the weak, the younger, the unattractive, the poor are placed over the older, wealthy, powerful, beautiful. We get the whole book of Genesis right here in a single moment. Jacob is showing he gets the grace of God. And that's why he does this. Now, This is a big deal, right, for him to do, a big deal for anyone to do, especially because, and you can't miss this, this is the first time that a person 
has done this on purpose in the book of Genesis in the Bible. See, all the other times, it was God doing it. God placing the younger before the older. But here, for the first time, a human being shows he or she gets it. He understands how God works in the world. And this is such a leap of faith, a leap of trust. This is such a big deal that when we get to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer recounts all the ways and means that people in the Old Testament followed God and did things by faith. Out of all the things it shows you about Jacob's life, I mean, what would it show you? Would it show you the ladder? Would it show you uh, the stone in the desert? Would it show you uh, the wrestling of the angel or his repentance for his brother? No, out of all the things you've got to see about the life of Jacob, it's this, 1121. The only thing listed about Jacob's life By faith, it says, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. This is such a big deal. You can't miss it. You can't miss this sign of grace. That's what Jacob does. By faith, he crosses his hands, goes against the stream of his culture. Now, when you heard that, I th- you probably liked it. You're like, you're like, yay, Jacob. I knew it. I knew he had it in him. I told you. You know, I liked him all along. And listen, but this is never easy to do, really, in your own day, in your own context. I mean, his own family doesn't like it. Even the people who were supposed to get this don't like this. Why? Oh, it's because grace, the grace of God, is always an insult to those who have forgotten their true spiritual condition. The grace of God is always an insult to those who have forgotten their true spiritual condition. So let's apply that thought, this whole point, in a number of ways here quickly. Let me ask you uh, where you are right now today. Are you using your power, what's in your hand, to elevate someone the culture says is a less than or a nobody, someone at the bottom, not the top? Where are you personally caring? For someone our culture says is an outcast. Uh, If you get involved with prison ministry or what we do in another country with orphans, or maybe you're a a mentor in in an elementary school, or uh, you're an advocate for those who do not have, if and when you do that, you show you get, like Jacob does, the grace of God. Where are you crossing your hands, culturally speaking, today? What about spiritually speaking? Where, where have you crossed your hands? Where have your own personal, spiritual values gone against the stream of, of culture? What about with your time, for example, right? I mean, you saw in the video, we're going to ask you to here to, to get involved with a, a community group, to get involved with the process somehow of, of being discipled, making disciples, and smaller groups are good contacts for that. You know, you say, well, that sounds nice, Morgan, but I'm busy. Yeah, now let me ask you a question. Do you know who here today is not busy? No one. No one's not busy. We're busier. Sociologists prove this. We're busier than we've ever been. You say, well, I've got this like career. Well, let me ask you. You know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about your career. It does talk a lot more about being discipled, making disciples, right? Listen, if your career leaves you too busy to do that, your family values, or I guess, leave you too busy to do that, you may want to look at what your true values really are. Maybe you started off one way, but you've now uncrossed your hands, and now you're going with a stream of culture, right? I mean, have you made yourself, the point is weak, vulnerable with your time before others? You say, that's kind of offensive. Yeah, 
I told you it was. Grace is always offensive to those who have forgotten their true spiritual condition. Now, this is ironic, right? Because we worry, don't we, about getting our needs met, right? You say, I'm, you know, why would I get involved with that? Listen, we get, it, we get nervous about it. We think, you know, will my needs get met? But the irony is if we'll do that many times, our needs get ways, met in ways we can't even foresee. Uh, a few summers ago, for example, Carrie and I came home from vacation, big happy time at Disney with the kids, right? And we come home. And our house has flooded. Big rainstorm, hole in the house apparently, you know, older home, all that. Drop our bags, squish, squish, uh-oh, right? Time to rip out the drywall, new baseboards, furniture, whole deal ruined. Well, guess who came over to help us? Our community group. They're in there doing drywall, fixing the floors, baseboards, shutters, doors, furniture, all that. You say, well, that's because you were the pastor or the pastor. You're trying to get under good side. That's not true because you know what? You weren't there. <laughs> they were. Why? Because why? We had prioritized our lives being together like that. How about this? How about let's apply it this way. What about with your with your, your your finances? Our culture says, "Hey, use all your money for you and live life to the margins." But the Bible says, "No, you begin your financial world. You order it by giving every month right off the top." You'd say, "Well, I'd love to give, but I got this, you know, house payment and car payment and stuff for the kids." Listen, no, that's uncrossing the hands. That's going with the stream of culture. That's elevating your personal status before kingdom values why wouldn't you in order to obey the bible if you call yourself a christian downsize your home hmm? sell your car maybe not buy that so you can obey god's word you say that's offensive again i told you it was grace is always an insult to those who have forgotten their true spiritual condition so let's ask, well, well, how, how does a guy like Jacob get this? How, how does all this drop? How does the penny drop into his heart? Oh, I love this. He tells you now at the end of this passage in one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. We didn't get to it in the reading, but again, Jacob blesses his grandkids. He starts to pray and bless his son, Joseph. And in the middle of the prayer, he breaks out and he says this about God. He says, he calls God, the God, he says, who has been my shepherd, all my life. Oh, I love this. In the Hebrew, this literally means, he says, God has been my feeder. God has fed me my whole life. You say, well, that's a nice thought. No, no. How could Jacob say this? Think about who's saying this. Think about Jacob's life. What kind of life had he had? Jacob never knew his father loved him. It blew a hole in his heart, the side of a building. He, he, for years, he was filled with self-hatred, chased women, stole from his family. And when he finally gets married to the love of his life, she dies in childbirth, leaving him bereft of love to the point where he ruins his own children in grief. They secretly loathe him. And the one son that he does love is thought to be dead. And he spends 20 years in a clinical depression. And when he finally arrives in Egypt, decades later, he says to Pharaoh, My days have been few, and here's the word, evil in number. That's the kind of life he had. So how can he say this here? Something's happened. Something's changed. Something's dropped in his heart. He's got the audacity, the temerity. There's your big word for the day. The maturity to say this. God's been shepherding me, feeding me at every single moment. How how could he say this? Oh, here's why. It's because Jacob remembered He had been a shepherd too. 
He'd been a shepherd too. And Jacob knew what it meant to be a shepherd and how a shepherd gets a lost sheep back. How do you get a lost sheep back, huh? Will the sheep come? Will it come to you when you call it? No, because it's a sheep. It's a dumb, stupid, filthy animal that won't come when you call it and doesn't know what's good for it. To get a lost sheep back, what do you have to do? Sometimes you got to seize it, throw it on the ground, break its leg, tie its legs together, fling it over your shoulder, and take it where it doesn't want to go. That's how you get a lost sheep back. Does the sheep deserve it? No. Did Jacob deserve it? No. Jacob's saying, I know what it takes to save a sheep's life. And that's what God has done for me. He's hurt me to heal me. See, I did not deserve the grace of God. And so right here, right now, I'm going to cross my hands and do the same thing for someone else. Can we live like that? That's number one. The crossing of the hands shows us the sign of grace. Let's keep going now. Time lapse two. Here we go. There's more to come. Time lapse two. The kneeling of the brothers. Let's go on in the story. Some moments after this, Jacob dies. His family mourns him. And now the brothers, oh, they get real nervous. See, that Joseph, oh, that he's going to remember, oh, I'm in power. You guys sold me up the river, right? Here I come. It's my time, my turn now, baby, to sell you. So they're nervous. They think Joseph's going to pay them back. And so they come to him. They're gathered before him, the ruler of Egypt. And this is what happens next. Verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Oh, you've got to pause. You've got to see this because now here is the incredible moment that Joseph had dreamed about, glimpsed at age 17 as a spoiled brat of a teenager. And now as a mature man, it's time-lapsing. It's flashing forth. It's all coming together. They're all now bowing down before him, just like in the dream. And seeing this, recognizing this, brings out of Joseph something so incredible, something so amazing. What he says to them right here, hear me, is the theological high point. It's the summit of the book of Genesis and of the entire Bible itself. You've got to see this. Verse 19. It says, but Joseph said to them, oh, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it. He meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Oh, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is why this is so brilliant. Hear me. We're going to look at this for a moment because this single verse, Genesis fifty twenty, it holds together the theological tension of the, in the Bible between the free will of people and the sovereignty of God. And let's take a look at it because this verse is not some spiritual band-aid that people ought to use on you or vice versa. This verse doesn't mean that everything that's happened to you has been God's desired will. No, he doesn't desire for abuse, betrayal, sin, evil to happen. He did not desire for Adam and Eve to sin. No, this verse beautifully acknowledges the free will that people have because Joseph says clearly, hey, you meant it for evil. You were trying to hurt me. That was your motive and intention down deep. He's not letting them off the hook. He's not saying, oh, whatever, forget about it. You know, I really, you really didn't mean it. No, he says you meant to harm me. It was your choice for which you are accountable. What you wanted to do was release evil and violence in the world. You had a choice and you chose, to quote Indiana Jones, you chose poorly. 
wrongly, evilly, right? And yet, and yet Joseph shows he understands what the sovereignty of God really looks like because he says, but God meant it for good. Now, we got a hard time, don't we? We have a hard time holding on and keeping these twin truths in tension, the free will of people and the sovereignty of God. Because in our culture, we tend to sort of go into one ditch or the other. We sort of, we tend to embrace either fatalism on one hand or something I'll call American futurism on the other. Let's look at these in turn. Fatalism, for example. Fatalism sounds like the late uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, the great physicist. He just died recently. And he said he didn't believe in God. He said, because there's no God, you're an accident of atoms, and everything about you is already written in your DNA. You're just a book that's got flesh and blood. You're walking it out, and the fix is in, and the future's bad. That's what he said. And so in his book, ironically titled The Grand Design, didn't really believe in design, but whatever. Anyway, he said this. Here's his summary. Here's what he, his view of the world. He said, we are no more than biological machines, so free will is an illusion. Now, that's fatalism. I don't want the universe to work like that. I think deep down we really don't believe that. Like it doesn't matter what we do. That's what he's saying. Let me tell you, you know it matters what you do. I know it matters what I do. I look in my children's eyes. It matters to them how their daddy treats them. I look in your eyes. It matters to you how I live, how I treat you. Some of you are saying, yeah, it matters a whole lot. Some of you have been in churches where it maybe didn't matter to the guy or the people, right? You don't want a life to work like that. On the other hand... I don't want the universe to work like most Americans. Probably most of us think it works. Uh, Like another esteemed physicist thinks it works. The esteemed uh, Dr. Emmett Brown, he of the time-traveling DeLorean and the inventor of the flux capacitor. Come on, back to the future, right? And back to the future, Doc Brown, he he comes comes to uh, Marty McFly and his girlfriend, and here's his view of how history works, the universe. He says, you know, Marty, he says, the future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. Now, that's kind of catchy, isn't it? That's a nice punchline for me. The future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. But that's not what Joseph's saying. That's not what the Bible says. And aren't you glad, by the way, the future isn't up to us. I mean, if that were the case, you should never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever get out of bed in the morning. You should never get out of bed. You could totally blow it, ruin your life, ruin the whole universe. It could come down to you, right? I mean, aren't you glad God didn't answer that prayer way back in high school when you begged him for that boy to ask you out or that girl to marry you or some kind of person you wanted? You know, he overruled it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good glory. Hallelujah, right? He lets you take a pass on that one. Aren't you glad? God gets the last word in the end, and the answer is yes. See, Joseph says here, the Bible says throughout, the universe doesn't work like either Doc Hawking on one hand or Doc Brown on the other, like fatalism over here, or, you know, American futurism over there. No, your actions matter. God will hold you accountable. It's appointed for a person once to die and face judgment. But what this is saying is that while there may be, and there is, great evil, God can override it. He can repurpose even the greatest evil for the greatest good. Take the worst things in your life, turn them into the best things, like that, like that fruitcake you got for Christmas, right? You didn't really want it. It's like God takes it, turns it into grandma's cookies, like the worst thing to the best thing. All right, whatever, bad example. But you get the point. And hear me, and listen, listen to this. If there were then not only something 
that if there were an all-powerful God, he would, be ha- he would have to be able to do. This is something that more than anything else, this is what I would want a God to look like and to be like. A God who can take the worst things that ever happened to me, what people meant for evil, the ways they meant to harm me, and turn them into my good. I want a God like that. Yeah. C.S. Lewis's autobiography entitled Surprised by Joy Lewis talks about a teacher he had who had an, an, this enormous influence on his life and the teacher's name was Professor Kirk and, but that's not what the students called him. They called him the Great Knock because he was always knocking them down, knocking down their arguments. And In, in the autobiography, Lewis talks about the first time and moment he ever spent with Professor Kirk and the, the great knock, as it were, picked him up from the train station, was driving him back to the school. And Lewis remarked in passing, he was getting nervous, you know, talking out loud. He, he started talking about how the, the scenery was wilder than he expected. And here's how the story goes. Stop, shouted Kirk. What do you mean by wildness? And what grounds did you have for not expecting it? I don't remember exactly what I replied, but as answer after answer was torn to shreds, it at last dawned on me that he really wanted to know. I was stung into attempting a real answer. He soon showed me I had no clear idea, a distinct idea corresponding to the word wildness. Do you not see, concluded the great knock, that your remark was meaningless? I assumed the subject would now be dropped. Never was I more mistaken. (laughs) Having analyzed my terms, Kirk now proceeded to deal with my pair opposition as a whole. On what had I based my expectations about the flora and geography of Surrey? Did I base my expectations on maps? Was it photographs or books? I could produce nothing. It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me before that my thoughts needed to be based on anything. So Kirk concluded, do you not see then that you had no right to have any opinion whatever? on this subject. Well, this set the tone that was preserved without a break throughout all the years I spent at Bookham. If ever a man came near to being a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. Some boys would not have liked it. To me, it was red beef and strong beer. And what you find out, the beauty of the story, is that Professor Kirk, the logical machine, was responsible for turning C.S. Lewis into a logical machine. And because Professor Kirk was an atheist, he was responsible for turning C.S. Lewis into an atheist. Oh, but here's the beauty of it. When C.S. Lewis became a Christian, as a result of being a student of Professor Kirk's, Lewis was the best debater, the clearest thinker, the most powerful rationalist and apologist for the truth of Christianity. See, God used an atheist. The atheist a great knock to turn Lewis into the greatest evangelist to the intellectual elite of the 20th and maybe 21st century and that's great oh but it gets even better because when Lewis later wrote his chronicles of Narnia and he wrote a version of himself as a character into the stories do you know what name he gave himself professor Kirk He named himself Professor Kirk. And this proves two things, of course. Number one, that God's got a great sense of humor about it all. But second, what looks like the worst thing is what God, the greatest knock, right, on your life, God turns and uses and whereby produces the saving 
like in Lewis's case, literally the saving of many lives. And the greatest evidence this is true is seen not just through Joseph here, but the one whom Joseph points to, Jesus Christ, because centuries after this, on the the first day of the church in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, the leader of the church, Peter, gets up and drawing directly here on Genesis 50, 20, he pulls it in, stands up before the congregation and preaches to the crowd. He says this in Acts 2, he says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you maybe like Joseph, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Oh, but God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. I mean, look at this, right? Here we are, both these truths. Who handed him over? God did by a deliberate plan. But who's responsible? What? Wicked men are held accountable here. These things were meant for evil, but God meant it for good, worked out all of it and purposed it for our good today. Listen, the kneeling of the brothers shows you the sovereignty of God. People mean things for evil. The brothers meant it for evil, but God means it for good. Finally, number three, one more final time lapse in Genesis. Let's see, let's look at the living coffin. This final verse, literally the final words of Genesis, give us this final image. Here we are, Genesis 20, 50, 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110. That was the ideal lifespan of an Egyptian, by the way. That's why that's in there. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Curtains down, book's over. You're like, this is so strange. This is how the book ends after all the, the floods and the, the miracles and the angels and the visions. Why does the book end with like this, you know, tales from the crypt horror movie shot of like a dead guy in a creaky coffin? What's this supposed to show us? Oh, but then you remember, how did the book begin? With creation. God creating the cosmos. And so in 50 chapters, we, we move, we time lapse, don't we? From creation at the beginning, chapter 1, to a coffin at the end, chapter 50. The book opens with the breath of God creating a living being. And it ends with the dying breath of Joseph leaving his dying being. It opens, the book does, with the expansion of life. But it closes with contraction and removal of life. You say, why is this? And the answer is, don't you know great storytelling when you see it? Because Genesis wasn't made to be read by itself because Genesis isn't the end. Genesis is part of a larger story, bigger picture, a a trilogy, quadrilogy, quintology, whatever you call it. And though the book closes here, the story doesn't because the sequel coming soon to a theater near you, Exodus, comes next. And do you know what happens? In the opening scene, the first verses of Exodus, what happens? Life. Life happens. To quote Jurassic Park, life found a way, right? Life happens. Babies are born. So many babies. It was like a pre-mosaic, like right there all the way back in Exodus. So many babies in the next few verses. It makes the Egyptians uncomfortable. And all the babies there, all the life that comes from Joseph's family provokes a massive confrontation, a divine supernatural showdown between Pharaoh and Yahweh, the one true God. And it sets up the greatest miracle in all the Bible. And finally, finally, here's the point. It shows God fulfilling centuries of promises he made long ago to Abraham, right? 
But if you only stop with Genesis 50, you only stop with the coffin. It only looks like death. It only looks like God partially fulfilled his word. So if you, let me tell you, if you stop where you are today, if you're facing some kind of death scene, right? Some kind of empty uh, like, it looks like an empty situation, like a, like a grave, like a, like a coffin, some kind of heartbreak because it feels like something has died or is dying in your life. If you just quit there, you'll never come into the promised land, the very real promised land God has for you. If you only see death, see the coffin, the end of the dream, and you quit, and you don't somehow by looking at your Savior, Jesus, seeing this image here, you don't have the courage to keep going, putting one foot in front of the other every day and following Jesus and turn the page into the next chapter of your life. You'll never see, you'll never come into the great thing he wants to do because, and here is the pattern, God we see in Genesis moves from creation to coffin, to new creation. That's how he works. Creation, coffin, new creation. And Jesus shows us the greatest evidence of this. Though Jesus wasn't created, he was not created unmade. He became a creature like us. He became flesh and blood. But he went into another, what kind of coffin? A tomb of his own. And it looked like God's promises in the same way to us to make a new covenant had come to a dead end. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? No, he is risen again and he lives to make all things new, to make life happen, bring life out of a coffin if anyone is in Christ it's my story he is a new creation 2 Corinthians 5 behold it says look see all things have become new and Joseph's coffin in Genesis is the seed therefore of new life in Exodus he goes into the ground but out of this one man came millions millions of people followers of God and Jesus in the same way went into the ground like a seed so that you Anyone who calls on his name can be saved, can be saved as well and follow him. So where, where are you today, huh? Some of you may be staring down death sentence from a doctor. It happens. Uh, divorce papers, maybe you thought you'd, you'd never see it. They're on their way. And you're thinking, God, if you, if you made this, if you created this whole deal, why is there a coffin, right? Why is there death? Oh, let me tell you. This is showing you. Turn the page. Keep following God in your story. Don't give up. Don't quit. New life can come out of that empty tomb for you. And let me tell you, even if, even if it all breaks bad, even if you do in a way, that person, you maybe, you go into the ground. If you've already gone into the ground with Jesus, identified with his burial and resurrection, He'll carry you through. Just like Joseph's bones were carried, he'll carry you into that promised land, the life to come. See that coffin in front of you? It's really, it's not just full of death. In the gospel, it's the seed of growth, the seed that brings life. George Herbert, the great Christian poet, he said this. He said, death, you know, death, death, death. That thing we're all afraid of. He said, death used to be an executioner. But in the gospel, he's only been made into a gardener. (laughs) He's been made into a gardener. He cuts you down. Oh, but like a flower, like a seed, like that, that weed in your yard you can't get rid of. The people of God keep coming back to life. Death used to be an executioner. The gospel, he's just a gardener. That's God's heart and plan for us. That living coffin becomes a seed for our growth. Can you say amen to that? Let's go to him now in prayer, asking for this truth, this grace to be ours.